0: Okay, well, everybody's getting settled down. Just the only announcement I can think of is the one for um, a week from Saturday, which is our monthly men's prayer breakfast and deacon's meeting. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto men, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in the word tonight, we need to make sure that we're properly prepared to study the word, properly prepared to be um, filled with the Spirit, with his word, and so that means that if necessary, we need to confess sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's so wonderful that we can come together this evening to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened by your word to be reminded of critical doctrines that we know, but yet we need to be reminded of, to understand that living today is in preparation for our future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. That in this life, we are often in a crucible, we are often going through testing, and that which is undeserved, that which is related to our being believers is specifically significant for our training and uh, your plan for our, our lives as we go into eternity. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight, you'd help us to understand these things and put these things together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Last time I stopped just before we got into the topic of the judgment seat of Christ. That hangs in the background, as we'll see, to what is being talked about in 1 Peter chapter chapter 4, understanding the issue of judgments. This is always confusing for people because they fail to understand that the Bible talks about different future judgments, but also there are present temporal judgments by God in time, and trying to sort that out is uh, challenging for some uh, theologians, and it's affected by a lot of different things. It's affected by your your view of prophecy. If you're amillennial, then you're going to have certain views. If you're postmillennial, you will have other views. If you're premillennial, uh, if you're a historicist premillennial, you'll have one set of views. If you are a dispensational premillennialist, you'll have a different set. So those things all play in the background. The reason I'm saying that is we have a difficult passage coming up. When we get to verse 17, and I have been reading about this and studying this for not a long time, but as I've seen it approaching, I don't know if any two agree. And what you discover is that you have to know where these commentators and different people are coming from in terms of their theological framework because it affects how they view this and how they view uh, the judgment there. And then to throw a nice little monkey wrench in the whole thing, Dr. Fruchtenbaum comes along and he has a view that is totally unlike anybody else, and he takes the judgment there as referring to A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a temporal Judgment. So trying to sort through the arguments, the details, is one of those fun things that we get to do as a pastor. So we'll talk about this, the judgments, and the judgment seat of Christ tonight. So as I pointed out in the introduction the last few weeks, as we're starting this section that's the conclusion to the epistle, that goes from 412 to 514. And in this opening part of... of, um, the conclusion, Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, to examine you. And actually, you don't have the word trial there at the beginning. It simply says concerning the fire. And and that stands for the intensity of this kind of a of a te- test. And um, it tests you, examines you. So we'll look at that as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering." Now in what sense does a believer participate in or share in the sufferings of Christ? Now you get some odd views on that as well uh, within the Roman Catholic tradition because we're sort of helping Jesus work along the way. Uh, that's a, We have to participate in the sufferings of Christ in some sort of meritorious fashion. So we don't believe that. Uh, that's not consistent with what Scripture teaches, that it's not by works, but it's totally by grace. And then when it talks about that when his glory is revealed... We have to understand what that means. You may also be glad with exceeding joy. So obviously, we know that talks about living today in light of this future event. And then if you are reproached, and the word there in the Greek means simply to be insulted, to be reviled, to be belittled, to be ridiculed for the name of Christ. And that's what I talked about last time is what does that mean? Because this is the area of suffering. I've talked generally about suffering, deserved suffering, and undeserved suffering, But this is a particular category of undeserved suffering. It is a category where we know that the cause for our suffering, our adversity, is directly related to what we believe about Jesus Christ, what we believe about Jesus in terms of his person and in terms of his work. And that's what I talked about last time, in terms of understanding this phrase the name of christ the name of something wasn't just nomenclature wasn't just a label but it had to do with the essence of something so when you did something in the name of jesus it's it's based on who he is and what he did it's not just saying like it's a magic formula at the end of a prayer uh, in the name of jesus as if it we don't say it then the prayer's not going to be answered but it is coming to God on the basis of who Jesus is as our high priest and what he did for us on the cross. And so it's not talking about prayer in the name of Jesus as if that's some sort of magic formula, uh, even saying amen. Uh, Some people say, well, if you don't say amen at the end of a prayer, then you won't get it answered. I mean, we had these little mystical superstitions about, you know, we just have to, hold our mouth right and hold, uh, look the right way and have the right pious expression or whatever, or God won't answer our prayer. And that's just not the way the Scripture treats, treats this. But in this case, it is uh, Peter is dealing with them because they are undergoing some persecution, resentment, hostility, ridicule uh, from the surrounding culture. And for Centuries in this country we haven 't had to even think about that. There might be some instances here or there where somebody who was hostile to Christianity might have insulted a person here or there. But now we have circumstances and situations where there are there are people who are uh, who lose their jobs because they are a Christian because they have a particular stand, especially in the area of same-sex marriage. And if they can't authorize uh, that, they, that, or they can't uh, uh, do anything to affirm that, then uh, there's various government, uh, state government, city government uh, laws or ordinances that seek to shut down those businesses. And this violates the freedom to worship as we see fit. And worship doesn't just mean going to what you do at church. This is what a secular society wants to do is it wants to restrict our freedom. Yeah, you're free to say and do and uh, preach whatever you want to when you're in that church, when you're in that building, when you're in that room. But you come out of that room and you go work for any corporation or have your own business, then you can't adopt policies that violate our, that are, that, that violate the law of the land in terms of same-sex marriage or these moral or social issues, you have to conform and we'll make you do it. Well, that this is taking us back to the Middle Ages and persecution. If you didn't believe just like the Roman Catholic Church said you should believe, then you would be burned at the stake. That's where this goes. And we are entering into that kind of an era Again, and there are different organizations that are fighting for us in the courtroom, and we need to pay attention to what is going on and take care of that. So, we see here that this is a very real situation for us today. If you are reviled, insulted for the name of Christ, then you're blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Because it's a quote out of Isaiah where it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, rests upon the Messiah. And we'll get there, but guess what the Hebrew word is in the original quote back in Isaiah 51? It's that word we've seen in Genesis 2, nuach, not Seem for put or place something, but it's that idea of resting and that that God rested Adam and Eve in that perfect environment of the garden. And it shows up in Isaiah in a couple of places talking about the rest that is there in the future in the messianic kingdom, the rest that the Messiah will bring uh, when he comes. And so the implication in Isaiah, and here is that this is a way in which the believer is is as like the Messiah, like Jesus, he rested. He was relaxed when he went through testing, when he went through opposition. That doesn't mean he didn't have turmoil. We know that he did in Garden of Gethsemane. And it was emotionally difficult. He was grieving. He was sorrowful. But at the same time, this is what's difficult for people to understand. He was relaxed. He never lost his relaxed mental attitude. To say that is to indicate that somehow he sinned. He always had that perfect joy that was his as the God man. And it wasn't a conflict with sorrow or grief, but it It changed the nature of that sorrow or grief because he knew God was in control and that he he was never shaken. That's That's why Paul can say to the Thessalonians that we grieve at the time of death of a loved one, but not like those who have no hope. And I can't tell you how many Christians that they can read it. You can ask, say, read that out loud. and They'll read it out loud. But all they hear is we don't grieve. That isn't what it says. It says, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Sorrow and sadness is part of the hypostatic union. Jesus experienced that, but he didn't do the wrong thing with the grief. He applied the word to the grief and to the sorrow. And in the same way, when we face adversity, persecution, hostility, we can relax in God even though there's Adversity going on around us and some turmoil, we can still relax and have that rest. So that's interesting how Peter quotes from that and picks up that same idea. Excuse me, he says on their part, that is on the part of those who oppose us, he is blasphemed when people ridicule Christians, and this is becoming more and more overt today. You go on college campuses. If you plan on sending your children or seeing your grandchildren go to a secular university, you better be preparing them with enough intellectual ammunition to stand against the hatred and the hostility they will face if it's known that they believe the Bible. And are they strong enough to handle that? And this kind of thing has been going on for the last 20 years. Even at some of your favorite universities, there are professors who despise and hate and attack Christians in the classroom. So they blaspheme, but on your part, he is glorified. What does it mean that God is glorified when we talk about how we go through suffering? I think that's an important thing to to answer and to address. What does it mean to glorify God? Sometimes p- people think of glorifying God as they would talk about glorifying a sports hero. You go through a game, and you see some some uh, athlete do a fantastic job on the field, and afterwards he gets all of these accolades. Everybody talks about how great he is, and it builds up his ego. But that's not what we mean when we talk about praising God or glorifying God. God doesn't have an ego to be built up. God is not conceited. God is not a God who just seeks to get all of the uh, accolades like we would to make ourselves somehow significant. He already is. He doesn't need that. The concept of glory we talked about in the worship uh, series on Tuesday nights, that the Old Testament word for glory has the idea of something that is weighty or important or significant. It's the word kavod and so when we talk about the glory of God sometimes it it's a circumlocution a, another way of talking about his essence and it's used that way uh in this passage but it also when it talks about glorifying God it's showing that God is indispensable in the life of his creature that he is central he is significant he is important he is that without which we cannot make it in life. And so that's what it means to show to, to glorify God when we're going through difficulty. It's to show that we can't make it without God. God is the one who sustains us and strengthens us, and he's the one who teaches us how to handle that adversity. It is not that it is about uh, giving accolades to God For all that he has done. That may come later, but that's not the central idea here. It is to show his centrality, his significance, and his indispensability. So in the last couple of lessons, I pointed out two things. We're adding a third thing tonight. In the first Peter 4, 12 through 14, Peter states first of all that facing suffering for our belief in Jesus shouldn't be a surprise. This is normal in a fallen world. Normal in a world that is hostile to God normal in a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air by satan uh, who is deceiving everyone so uh, we shouldn't think it is strange that this test comes our way that we encounter difficult circumstances because of our faith jesus warned us about this in matthew 10:22. you'll be hated by all for my, because of my name because of who i am in John fifteen eighteen through 20, uh, Jesus said, uh, just look at verse 20, or verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus is the victim of a hate crime. It says it right there, right? Jesus was hated, will be hated. We've gotten away with a lot over most of our lives, and I think that that is going to change in the next two or three decades. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, Jesus said, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So there are two types of people, those who hate and will persecute, those who are believers and those who respond positively and keep or obey Jesus' word. And John fifteen twenty one. but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because of who i am so that's the issue is who is jesus in our lives second thing that's mentioned by peter here is that the suffering is related to christ's suffering it's undeserved suffering for doing right insofar as we experience undeserved suffering we share in christ's suffering that's the word koinoneo sometimes it's translated fellowship it means to share something to participate in something together. Now, we have to understand that what's talked about here isn't that we are sharing in in Christ's salvific suffering, that which where he paid the penalty for our sin. But as Peter has pointed out all the way through Peter, Jesus suffered unjustly, the just for the unjust, he is beaten, he's ridiculed, they spit on him, they blaspheme. All of those things happened to Jesus on the way to the cross. They weren't part of that payment for sin, which occurred between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when there's darkness on the face of the earth, and it's at that time that God the Father imputed to Jesus the sins of the world. That's when the sins are paid for. That's when that suffering it takes place, the salvific suffering. But this is talking about the kind of suffering these people are facing and that we could face, the rejection, the hostility, the ridicule, the blasphemy, being made fun of, being thrown in prison because of our faith in Jesus. And so in that sense, we too suffer the same way Jesus suffered. We suffered for doing the right thing. We suffer for doing uh, God's will it's undeserved suffering and so we share in that it's not talking about anything related to his work of salvation we're not earning salvation we're not gaining the merit of Christ or any of those ideas and that's in verse 13 but rejoice to the extent notice there's a comparison there rejoice to the extent that you share in Christ's suffering now we can go through a lot of undeserved suffering in this life but it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we're a Christian or the fact that we're taking a stand for Christ or that we're representing him. It's just because we live in a fallen world, we go through undeserved suffering. But Peter here is, re- is indicating that this is related to that which uh, is related to undeserved suffering for Christ's sake, for being reproached for Christ's sake. And that when his glory, and there. That's when we have the word glory used to indicate his essence. For All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. See, the glory of God, there is a circumlocution. It's a figure of speech for the entire essence of God, who God is. We have fallen short of God's standard of his righteousness, his justice, all that is holy about God. So when his glory, that is the essence of Jesus, when his glory at the time of his return, when we see him in all of his splendor and glory at at his return for the church age believer at the rapture in the clouds, then we can be glad with exceeding joy. And that's when that event immediately precedes what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat, which we'll look at in just a minute. The third thing that Peter says here is that when the believer suffers for his belief and obedience to Jesus uh, as a source, uh, when the believer suffers for his belief and obedience to Jesus is a source of blessing, which, uh, let me, that should be rewritten. When the believer suffers for his belief and obedience to Jesus, this is a source of blessing which will reverberate through eternity. You know, we can't imagine millions of years in the future. We we still will be blessed. We will have the rewards that will be distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll still be functioning in our role and responsibility in in eternity, and that will be the result of what we do today, how we handle that kind of suffering. Now as I pointed out in the past, last week, Peter and James are talking about the same thing to the same group of people. James wrote, I think, somewhere around 43, 44 AD, very early. He's, I believe James is the first epistle. Peter is writing a little bit later. He's writing in the 50s. And so and maybe even in the early 60s, but I think it's more like the mid to late late 50s. And they're using the same language because the, this persecution that James is talking about, the tra- t- trials and tests that James talks about, are more explicit in Peter as tests related to uh, being reproached for the cause of Christ. So a couple of lessons back, we started looking at James, and I just want to point out some of the uh, similarities that we find between James and Peter. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, we see some interesting words that come out here. Uh, he says to count it joy, and the word here, hegeomai, is a word that indicates uh, thought. It indicates reason. It, it, it's a, a counting term. It's to add something up and come to a conclusion that as we look at the difficulties in our life, we add it up, and the result should be a joyful mental attitude. So we have this same idea of thinking and joy uh, indicated in the first part of First of Peter. Uh, knowing that the testing of your faith, uh, that word down here is perasmas, uh, or excuse me, the word for trials is the word perasmas, and this indicate it can be a test or a temptation. Now, the difference between a test and a temptation is objective versus subjective. A test is an opportunity to choose to do right or to do wrong. Usually when we use the word temptation in English, we're emphasizing the enticement to do wrong aspect of it. Uh, But that's the emphasis. We fall into these different tests, different opportunities to either apply the word or not apply the word. In the second part of this, we have the phrase, uh, knowing, that's the first word that I have in the purple. Uh, Knowing is a participle, and so it should be understood with a causal sense. Jesus is saying, I mean, uh, James is saying, count it joy. That's your your command. And why should we count it joy? He says, because you know something, or maybe You say count of joy, and your answer would be, well, how do I do that? He says, well, because you know something. You've been taught something. You've been informed already. We've taught you that you have come to know. It's a word gnosko, which usually means something you've learned or you've come to know. You know that the testing of your faith, and that's the second word there, uh, testing, that the testing of your faith. That's this word that's highlighted here, dachimion. Now, that's a key word. Dachimion means to evaluate something for appro- approval. It's related to a verb that we'll talk about in 1 Corinthians 3 in a minute. But that word, that verb means to evaluate something for the sake of approval. It's to show what, what you're made of. It's to show the quality that's there. It's not to, give, to show how you failed or to point out all of the things that you've done wrong, but to expose the things that you have done well. So it's an evaluation. God puts us in these situations so we can show what we've learned. And that fa- testing of our faith then produces, and it's King James translated, patience. Patience is a different concept. This is the Greek word uh, hupomene, which has the idea of of abiding in a situation. Mone is from the Greek uh, verb meno, which means to abide or to remain. Hupa, the prefix, indicates being under something. So literally, it might have the idea of remaining under pressure remaining in the circumstances. You're not trying to avoid it or to escape. You're, trying to, you're going to stay there, but what allows you to stay there and have joy is what you know, is you're able to apply the Word of God and understand God's plan and purposes in relationship to uh, your spiritual growth. So because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance— Now, look at what we have over in 1 Peter. 1 Peter also talks about the genuineness of faith. See, back here in James, it says the testing of your faith. Now, the concept in both passages about faith isn't testing your ability to believe something, okay? Sometimes faith has that idea, the ability to believe or the act of belief expressed as a noun. But faith also represents what it is that you believe. Sometimes you may talk about a person's faith, and what you mean is what denomination they belong to, whether they're Presbyterian or Episcopal or Methodist, Roman Catholic. uh, What's your faith? And so faith represents the body of belief that you have. And so what James is saying is that our doctrine— what we say we believe, what we have been taught and what we have learned, that is what is being tested. We've gone through, as it were, a six-week period of instruction, and now God gives us an exam to put into application that which we have learned. So he tests the faith, what we say we believe, and to give us the opportunity to live it out. So, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, I pointed out that the word testing there is dokimion, meaning the evaluation of your faith. And here we have both those words, dokimion and pistis, showing up here in verse uh, 1 Peter 1, 7. That the genuineness of your faith, in other words, the evaluation of your faith once again... God is going to give us these opportunities, these tests to expose our spiritual growth, to expose what we're learning, to give us the opportunity to show what we're able to do. Uh, Sort of reminds me of as a kid growing up, I took, like many of you probably took piano lessons. And what happened at the end of every year? you had a chance to play at a recital. Now, that was to show what you'd learned, not to show the mistakes that you made. Same thing happened later on in band. Every year you'd have band contests that would come up, and I usually was involved in an ensemble or a solo or different things of that nature. And it was to show your improvement, to show what you had learned, not to expose your inadequacies, So that's the idea here. Peter says the same thing that James does, the genuineness of your faith, the quality, the evaluation of what you have come to know. So this is more precious than gold. That which you internalize in your soul, what we learn, what we believe, that which we stand on in terms of what we have been taught, the doctrine that's in our soul, that is that is what is valuable that's the only thing we take with us into eternity you're not going to take your cars your bank account your homes your friends your family many of them may end up in heaven but what you take with you of what you have the only thing is the word of god embedded in your soul and so That is more valuable than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And here we have this imagery that comes in that comes out of the whole background of refining precious metals to burn off that which is impure. See, you're exposing the gold, the silver. You're not exposing the dross. You're not exposing the dirt, the impurities. You're burning those off. And so that imagery runs all the way through the testing by fire a lot of times in some circles whenever you read the word "fire," they think of the lake of fire It just that's not the idea here. This is not punishment; this is to uh test to evaluate to purify and so when this is exposed, then it brings praise and honor and glory when at the revelation. Of Jesus Christ. That's the same thing that that we're talking about here in First uh, First Peter chapter four, uh, verse fourteen, when it talks about uh, when Christ comes, that we will be. Our, excuse me, verse thirteen, when His glory is revealed, that you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So, we have these same ideas in James and Peter. Peter, First uh, 1 Peter 1, 1.6, in this you greatly rejoice. So we have those same ideas of joy uh, being grieved by various uh, trials so that the genuineness of our faith can be exposed. So all of this tells us that the background for this study is an understanding of the judgment seat of Christ. And so we're going to review that because we need to understand also these different judgments that are in the Scripture. There's the great white throne judgment we'll look at in a minute, which has to do with the eternal destiny of unbelievers. Great white throne judgment is not for believers. And then there's the judgment seat of Christ, otherwise known as the Bema seat, which is is for believers to evaluate their works in this life for rewards and responsibilities in the eternal state. So in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's one word, judgment seat, is the word bima in the Greek, as we'll see in a minute, so that each one may be recompensed or repaid. For his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So now this isn't being talked about in terms of sin. It's being talked about in terms of that which has eternal value and that which is worthless in in the Greek. So we have the idea of abema. Abema is a word that runs in various languages it would refer to a raised or an elevated seat in the judicial sense where the magistrate or the tribunal would sit. In judicial settings, this was the judge or tribune would sit there. The tribune would sit there. Or in athletic contests, you go to various uh, stadiums that have survived from the ancient world uh, Olympic stadiums. Even for those of you who've been to Israel, when we go to Um, Caesarea by the sea and there's the uh, Hippodrome there and you see all of the seats and in the middle there's a group of seats that are slightly raised and look very different from all the other seats that's where the judges of the contests would sit that's, that's the Bema if you go to a synagogue today and you look up at the front we call it a pulpit we call this the dais they call it the Bema The bema is just a raised platform, and it's the same idea. So this is a word that has a general meaning of a raised platform of significance, and it could refer to the seat of a judge, or it could refer to the seat of a judge of an athletic, a judicial or legal judge, or the judge in an athletic contest. Now, in this chart, I identify eight judgments now you may find one more sometimes i count this i'm not sure how i've done it sometimes i include the antichrist and false prophet in the same judgment that's why i get eight but if you divide them as separate ones then you have nine Uh, but i usually look at those as being the same judgment we're here in the church age We think we are close to the end of the church age, and we very likely are in my opinion, but we don't know if that close to means 10 years, 50 years, or another couple of hundred years because we have no idea when the Lord is going to return at the rapture. There is the rapture that occurs at the end of the church age, that ends the church age. Those who are alive in Christ, uh, or the dead in Christ rather, will be Caught up to be with him in the air, the dead in Christ rise first, then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with him in the air, and thus will ever be with the Lord. This is the tribulation. It is part of a group of resurrections, starting with Christ, the first fruits, and also including the two witnesses in the middle of the tribulation, and then the final Uh, resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation martyrs at the end of the tribulation. So that's all part of the first resurrection. Second resurrection are all unsaved that are resurrected for the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. So we have the church age, the rapture, and this is when the judgment seat of Christ takes place. I don't think it's going to take long. We've got, I've got detailed studies on this in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, you have a chorus that is praising Jesus because he has redeemed us is the pronoun. That means that those singing at that time before the tribulation begins, that doesn't begin until Revelation 6, those who are singing before the throne of God are believers. Where do they come from? Well, they were told in Revelation 4 have already received crowns. They're identified as Stephanos crowns, not as Diademos crowns. Now, Diademos crown is a ruling crown, the crown of a monarch. But a Stephanos crown is a crown that is given as a reward. For example, in an athletic contest, sometimes they would be woven out of oak leaves or laurel leaves or uh, some other leaves, and they would wither and die, and they just didn't last. But these are our, the rewards to a group that then throws them before the throne of God and will sing to the Lamb of God, worthy are you to receive the scroll because you have redeemed us. It can't be angels. It has to be church-age believers who are resurrected and already rewarded. And this takes place when Jesus is given the scroll with the seven seals, and when he begins to open those seven seals at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6, those are the seven sealed judgments that begin the tribulation period. So that means that the behemoth seat takes place between the rapture, and the beginning of the tribulation and that of course in earth time may just be five or ten minutes but in timeless heaven it could take up who knows how much time because time in a human sense won't count so so don't think that the bema seed has to take uh like seven the whole seven years or something like that so they're raptured they're rewarded and then they're going to return with the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period. At that time, there are four judgments that take place. There are judgments for the surviving Gentiles, judgments for the surviving Jews. That's the sheep and the goat judgments described in Matthew chapter 25, the first and the second uh, parables there Matthew chapter 25. Then you have resurrected Old Testament saints and resurrected tribulation martyrs. These are going to be rewarded at that time. So that's four different distinct judgments. It's at that time that the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And also at that time that Satan is going to be bound in the abyss for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years... Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire after he leads a revolt against God. And then there will be a final judgment spoken of as the great white throne judgment. Uh, John sees this great white throne high and lifted up and the unsaved dead. Uh, Sheol gives up its dead. The oceans give up their dead. All unbelievers and they're evaluated to see if they have the kind of righteousness to go into the eternal state. So those are the judgments. The Bema Seat, the great white throne, are, as far as we're concerned, the most significant. What we're talking about here are judgments related to the, to the Bema Seat. That's um, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Now, the details of what's involved in the Bema Seat are given in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is one of those fun chapters. There's a lot there that's going on earlier in the chapter, in the first three verses. Paul talks about the fact that there are two different kinds of believers. There are those who he can talk to as spiritual because they're growing, they're walking by the Spirit, And those who are carnal, those who are still living in the flesh and doing everything out of their humanity, they are walking like mere men. That phrase means that they're not walking according to the Spirit. They're trying to pull themselves up in the terms of their own morality and their own effort without walking by the Spirit. They're not of the spiritual ones. So later in the chapter... Paul is going to talk about the long-term results of those who are spiritual versus those who are carnal. It's not their eternal destiny, but it has to do with what they will receive in terms of rewards. So he talks to these Corinthians, and he says, For we, we, notice that plural, we're going to get into Ephesians in about a month or so. And in Ephesians, Paul uses we and us and you and us a lot. And it's so important to trace who he's talking about by those pronouns. Same here. When he says, uh, We are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Who's the we? Who's the you? The we refers to Paul and the apostles and those who are working with them we are god's fellow workers you that is those corinthians who are new believers who are growing hopefully some many were not you are god's field you are god's building so now he uses mixed metaphor here he uses one that's an agricultural metaphor and one that is a building a construction metaphor that's the one that he's going to develop he says, you are God's building. God is building something. And he's not talking about the church or the church building. He's using that as a metaphor for each individual's spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. In verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. Now, the grace of God there stands for the gifts that God gave to Paul and the mission that God gave to Paul, the privilege that God gave to Paul to serve the Lord as a steward. One of the most interesting passages, and I think important passages to understand, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. If you look at verse 1, Paul says, Let a man so consider us. Who's, who's he talking about? That first person plural talking about the apostolic team, those who are serving the Lord and ministering to the Corinthians. He says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? The mysteries of God relate to his revelation in the church age, previously undisclosed information. So Paul says, This is how you should think about us. We're servants of Christ, and we are responsible administrators, managers of God's revelation. That's the important thing for them to know, is the apostolic team is responsible for the communication of God's revelation. And then he says, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now that's really an important verse because we live in a world today when if you work for any company, if you work for any corporation, you probably have an annual evaluation period where you are uh, you're brought into to your supervisor, and they go over your job description, how well you're doing, or maybe how well you're not doing, and what you can do to improve, and those kinds of things. Just like in school, you get a report card. In school, we have to do well, so we want to have an A or hopefully B+. Plus. And then if we're working, we always want to make sure that there's quantifiable results so you can evaluate it. One of the problems I had as a young pastor in my second church was I had four men who were self-employed um, entrepreneurs, and they wanted to quantify everything. They'd say, we need you to write yourself a job description so that we can quantify and evaluate you. I said, after you handle First Corinthians 4.2, God's evaluation is that I'm faithful God's evaluation is not how many people I bring into the church, because Jesus said, I will build the church, and he told Peter, you feed my sheep. So the issue is, am I feeding the sheep? Am I faithful in the way I handle Scripture? That's what one is all about, is faithfully managing the Word of God. And so that's what Paul talks about in verse two. Moreover, it is required in stewards that they be found faithful. That's the that's the issue. So, as believers, we're given these 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 spiritual gifts, spiritual abilities. We're given the spiritual assets. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're given the word of God. All of these are given to every single believer, and we're all expected to be faithful in the way that we use those assets that God gave us. We can either use them in the power of our sin nature, in the power of the flesh, or we can use them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, Paul contrasts walking according to the Spirit with walking according to faith. I mean, walking according to the Spirit versus walking according to the flesh, the sin nature. Same thing in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit or walk according to the flesh, the sin nature. And so uh, the issue then is up to each one of us how much time we're going to spend walking by the Spirit and developing these uh, assets that God has given us, the spiritual gifts, the spiritual assets of the Word of God and how well we study it and how well we apply it. And so that's what uh, Paul talks about here. This is like it's made analogous to a builder and that builder is going to uh take his plans and he is going to lay a foundation that's Christ. Christ is the foundation that is laid. And then Paul says another uh, another builds on it. A pastor is going to come in, he's going to teach. And he says let each one take heed how he builds on it. And now he's he's talking about the individual. How well you're building on your foundation of Christ, because what's going to happen is you're going to use different building materials. Now, ultimately, he's talking about the Bema seat. I've got this couple of pictures out of order here, but here is a picture of the Bema seat. That's a little lighter and shows up better. The Bema at Corinth in Greece, the hill in the background, there's a temple At the top, that's the Acro-Corinth, or the high point of Corinth. And down here is the remains of where the uh, tribune would hold court. And there, when I was there, there's a sign, I think you can see it right about there if you know what you're looking for, and it says Bema in Greek and then transliterated into Latin letters. That was the Bema seat. This is where the judge would sit and make the evaluation. So as Paul goes on and Paul uh, describes what he has done, he says, No other foundation can, can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ. So he's explaining his metaphor. And he says, If anyone builds on this foundation, so... Over the course of your life, you're going to build with these different building materials. Now, some people have come along and they've tried to say, well, gold represents this kind of ministry and silver represents... You know, that, that's just... that That isn't made up, okay? All the illustration. Some people come along and they want to make illustrations walk on all fours. All that we have here is that there's three things that are of imperishable value. They will continue beyond this life, and that there are three things that represent that which is destroyed and has no eternal value. So you have gold, silver, and precious stones, and wood, hay, and straw. And then in verse 13, Paul says, each one's work will become clear. It will be made manifest. What is being made manifest is not your sin. Christ at this point isn't concerned about judging us for our sin because he already bore that penalty on the cross. He paid the penalty. It's paid in full. Colossians 2, 12 to 14, the certificate of debt was wiped out by being nailed to the cross in A.D. 33 so that sin isn't the issue in terms of your entry into heaven. But if we have spent most of our time out of fellowship, which means we're sinning, then we're not accomplishing anything that has eternal value. And so there's not going to be a whole lot less left after the uh, fiery evaluation. Again, he uses that same image of the refining of metal. When you refine metal, you raise it to a certain temperature where the metal will, will melt, but the dross, the impurities, the dirt, all of that will burn up. And so you're just left with that which endures, that which has eternal value. So he says, the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. So does the fire reveal the impurities? Or does the fire reveal that which has an enduring value? It just exposes that which has eternal value. It's not exposing the sin. God's not concerned about our failures at this point. He's there to show what we've done well because that's what is rewardable. And the focus of the judgment seat of Christ is to reward us. So the fire will test it. Here's that verb, "dokimazo." It's the verb form of that noun we saw in 1 Peter 1 and in James, decimian, to evaluate something. The fire will evaluate each one's work. This fire is not hell. It's not the lake of fire. The fire will evaluate each one's work to determine what kind it is. So we have these six different metaphors, wood, hay, and straw on the left side, a house of gold, a house of silver, and a house built with precious stones on the right side. When you strike a match... The left side is what burns up. It's not going to survive. And there will be people who will left with nothing at the judgment seat of Christ. But they're still saved. They're still going to go into eternity. They just have nothing that is rewardable. This is what Paul says in First Corinthians 3.14. He says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures... This is the word minnow. Remember, I talked about the fact that we need to endure trials? That's hoopo minnow. This is just the root verb minnow. If any anyone's work which is built on it endures, he will receive a reward. That reward is for that which survives. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet, as through fire. Now, years ago, I worked out this chart. Bill, does that look familiar to you? Harry and I worked this out about 1985. Been teaching it for 30 years. Basically, it works like this we get saved. This is phase one. We trust in Christ as Savior, we're justified. And then we go forward in our life from there. Then the next part has to do with how we live our spiritual life. We go through tests of doctrine, tests of faith. We can either apply the word, that is we're positive to the word, and we're going to go in the green area, and we are going to grow. And it produces divine good, that which is good, because it's produced by the Holy Spirit. See, if we go in the other direction, we're going to produce just human good. Now, I can wake up in the morning, and I can be upset. I can be a little bit, I watch the news. I know nobody here does this. I'm the only one who does this. You get up in the morning, you watch the news, and 30 seconds later, you are already upset, angry, bitter, resentful about something that's going on in the world. And then you pick up your Bible and start reading it. Now, if you don't confess your sin and get back in fellowship, then what happens is that you're just reading your Bible in the flesh. That doesn't have any spiritual value. You can witness. You can go through your day. You can witness. You can pray. You can do all kinds of biblical things, but you're doing it from your own sin nature. And that's just not going to count. That's down in this lower level. You're just producing human good. But, if you're walking with the Lord, you have said, Lord, I was angry, bitter, resentful. This morning, I know you're in control of history. I'm just going to relax and follow your word. Then, as you read your Bible and as you pray, God the Holy Spirit is working in that, and you're producing divine good. Nobody else can tell the difference. Most of the time, you and I can't tell the difference in our own lives. We have no idea what's going to be exposed or not exposed at the judgment seat of Christ. We can't evaluate that very well. So if you're applying the word, it's going to give you life. You will develop a rich, abundant capacity for life, enjoyment of life. And then you have to endure. You have to keep it going. So that's your steadfast endurance, hupomone, And this eventually leads to adult spiritual life and maturity. It's all characterized as walking by the Holy Spirit. But if you're cycling down here, it's a downward spiral. Things get worse and worse. You come under divine discipline. You start reaping the consequences of your own bad decision. If you're failing, you're not applying the word, then you're going to continue to sin you're going to produce morality, but it has no eternal value. And your life will be characterized as dead because you're living like a spiritually dead person, even though you are regenerate. And this will lead to further weakness and instability. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians? Because they were using the Lord's table as a means of of just having a great time and a great party. He said, for this cause, many of you are weak and sickly and some of you sleep some die the sin unto death because of their their disrespect and their abuse at the lord's table so it leads to weakness and instability and spiritual regression and a hardened heart and all of this just cycles until you die and then you go to the judgment seat of christ those that did not do well that operated on the flesh most, if not all, of the time will lose rewards. They'll suffer loss, First Corinthians says. They'll have shame at the judgment seat of Christ, but they're still saved. That's grace. Christ died for their sins. They'll be in heaven. They'll be in the kingdom, but they won't enjoy the fullness of the kingdom. Those that are walking by the Spirit they will be evaluated, they'll have gold, silver, and precious stones, they'll be rewarded, and they'll receive an inheritance, and they'll rule and reign with Christ in the in the millennial kingdom. So this is the difference. This is the backdrop for understanding the judgments, the reason that God allows suffering, and what is going on in the background for understanding this in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, that if we are Suffering, undeserved suffering, and specifically in this category for the cause of Christ for his name's sake, then the result is that it glorifies God, it will glorify him at the judgment seat of Christ, and then we will be rewarded. But if not, this is what Peter says in verse 15 let none of you suffer. As a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. We'll talk about this next time. But what he's saying is, that's deserved suffering. You're getting what you deserve if that you've, you've done the, committed these sins or crimes. Then whatever suffering you have, you deserve it. But then he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. See, that's what I was talking about. Shame at the judgment seat of Christ. You won't be ashamed but let him glorify God in this matter. So we'll come back and look at that and then eventually get into verse 17 probably next time. Father, thank you for being able to study your word like this to be reminded of how much you have provided for us, how much you've given us, and that we go through tests and trials and difficulties in this life. Father, we know that as we live our life and as we trust in you, that you will mature us and that you will be glorified and that even though we can't see it, uh, we know that we're producing fruit that counts for eternity. Challenge us that we'll live for you and we'll do that which you've provided for us and that you will strengthen our, our resolve to endure, to persevere, and to trust you in Christ's name. Amen.